You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and I'm once again joined by Mathieu, Tom, and Saul to finish off our countdown of the best films of 2020 with an episode dedicated specifically to our number one films of the year. That's right, that magic top favorite. And as expected, we're looking at four very different films, three of which even appear to be a little bit contentious. So, let's just jump right into it, following the same uh, order as in the previous episode. Mathieu, what is your number one favorite film of 2020? Okay, so my number one is Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Charlie Kaufman is a filmmaker I appreciate a lot, but I think I've tended to appreciate him more as a screenwriter than as a director. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind remains my favorite from his work, and this is kind of Eternal Sunshine with none of the optimism that Michel Gondry presumably brought to it, which might sound terrible, but it's probably more true to who Charlie Kaufman is, and it's also a massive directorial achievement. For someone who is so well known for the complexity and sophistication of his scripts, and this film certainly has all of that, what I find remarkable about this film is how splendidly shot it is, how carefully Kaufman and cinematographer Lukasz Zal craft these images, how Kaufman effortlessly goes from existential drama to cringe comedy and then to musical sequence or a parody of an Oscar movie. Of course, it all holds together because Kaufman is such a clever and thoughtful writer, one who is constantly putting his own role as a writer in the center of the film. Every Kaufman film is kind of about the act of creating it and of what reflecting on existence means. That's all very interesting, but what's remarkable is how entertaining he also makes it, thanks in no small part to two great performances by Jesse Plemons and especially Jesse Buckley in the role that's should not work. Her character is, by definition, incomplete and indefinite, and yet her performance enriches uh, Kaufman's writing so much and creates a fascinating character where there almost shouldn't be one. I'm being a little coy in discussing this film, uh, because it's a film that asks more questions than, than it answers, and that leaves a lot to up to interpretation. Uh, but it's a difficult art to make that kind of film feel lived in and truthful rather than dispassionate and theoretical. And Kaufman is really growing as a director, I think, and succeeds in giving us a new vision of his familiar type of existential drama and comedy. We've talked a lot about endings in this episode, and we've mentioned that sometimes we don't love the endings even from, for the films in Autop 5. And I think where I'm thinking of ending things, which has a, a choice of an ending, uh, is, uh, is succeeding is in the being that open-ended. It's, you really can bring a lot to it yourself, but it falls on the right side of ambiguous, right? It's, it's not ambiguous as in, well, you do all the work, uh, dear viewer. <laughs> it's, it gives you so much, uh, that, that you can work with, I think, before that. And with all of the different styles it explores, uh, and with the, again, the gorgeous cinematography. Yeah, so it, it's a, a film I absolutely loved. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of ending things was my number six going into the podcast. So just uh, scrape past out of my top five. I do think it's a thoroughly excellent film and I agree with most of what Mature has said about it already. 
what I think really works about the film is the ambiguity and just the general sense of something not quite being right. So there's just little hints there from, you know, thoughts that seem to be heard aloud. You've got some character names that seem to change. Appearances of characters change subtly from shot to shot. There's a whole lot of disorientating things that goes on, makes you wonder exactly where it's going. And as it goes on, it does actually quite spiral out into some unpredictable but absolutely fascinating directions. Something which is interesting about the film, but might just be a personal thing, when I went into it with the title like that, I thought when it meant I'm thinking of ending things, I thought that meant that she was thinking of ending her life. So I watched the film initially thinking it was about this woman thinking of committing suicide, but the uh, things this time is actually about the relationship with the boyfriend. But I don't know, maybe it is going to be a combination of both. But it was really interesting going with that mindset, thinking, you know, it's going to be about this woman thinking of, you know, killing herself, ending things, ending the world, and ends up being about the relationship, but then ends up being a little bit more beyond that. So, uh, yeah, I guess just knowing so little about it, going in with those expectations, it was, yeah, really an amazing ride. I didn't quite understand all of it by the end of it without reading up a little bit about it afterwards, but... The ride was just so amazing. It was so atmospheric that I didn't really mind either way. Uh, lots of great, quotable dialogue, interesting ideas. One of them, uh, something in there about movies being described as lies to pass the time. Uh, just lots of great ideas, as you'd expect from Kaufman. Uh, I like this a lot more than Eternal Sunshine, which I'm not as big a fan of as most people are, although I'd probably still put being John Malkovich above this in the... Um, Kaufman canon. Up until now, I've not really enjoyed any of Kaufman's directorial efforts. Like Matthew, I appreciate him more as a, a screenwriter, but this is a huge step up from uh, what he's given to us before when he's worked as a director. Like Sol said, the sense of unease that builds and builds throughout, and these little moments that become more disorientating as, as the film progresses, it creates a, a brilliantly disturbing atmosphere and you're never quite sure what's going to happen next it's a strange and beguiling mystery but you can't look away from it you're drawn in and you're very intrigued as to to what's going to happen there's some amazing performances um david thulis as well and tony collette are excellent as well as the two leads and i always love a film which just has a surprise musical number halfway through it um and the one here is is truly mesmerizing so this was another great film that narrowly missed out in my top 10 and one that I'm very forward to revisiting at some point because I feel like there's a lot that may have gone over my head and now I've experienced it once over, it'd be good to, to go back in knowing where the film goes and just trying to pull out those little nuances that the director makes and the little hints that uh, foreshadow what's to come. So yeah, I really recommend this one. Yeah, I can just uh, join that. It's uh, great work. It's just outside my top 10 as well. And the only thing that's really different here is that, uh, contrary to you, this is probably my least favorite of the three feature films that uh, Charlie Kaufman has directed. And I think it's it's almost a great sequel, in a way, to uh, Synecdoche, New York, because this is an existential horror film wrapped in the coating of a dark comedy. And existential horror is something that 
Charlie Kaufman does better than almost anybody else. It's just this sense of your life is coming to an end, time is running out, mundanity is all there is. And uh, in both of these films, he kind of just plays with time and reality uh, and life just merging into this much larger, much more dreadful and horrifying and almost claustrophobic type of existence. Now, I'm thinking, if anything, it's a much smaller work in the sense that it's far more contained. Uh, it mainly takes place in a few key locations that are also really important locations to the almost a price lead, because obviously in all of the promotion, in all of the imagery, etc., uh, Jesse Buckley uh, seems to be the lead. She's the, it's almost the narrator even, she's the person lending her voice, but uh, Jesse Plemons as Jake is essentially who this film is kind of about, without spoiling too much. The way it displays with his life, and uh, especially from the perspective of Jesse Buckley as his girlfriend, or uh, and again without spoiling anything, it, it's it's really unique. It does some new twists to this kind of extreme psychological horror. And when are we going to talk about without spoiling? I'm actually not going to spoil a film coming up from one of the others. It's number one, but it has this kind of thing where time is just disappearing. You left disoriented, and it's an awful feeling. It's it uh, uh, yet it's so. Great as well. It's just dreadfully clever. It's overly stylized. I, I do think that maybe the production values, for instance, could have been slightly bigger. But like as a Netflix film, as a film that's you know contained in these small locations, it works so well. And yeah, it, it's it's a great work. I just recommend to everybody. And hearing you guys too, as people who were not as big a fan of his previous uh, directorial efforts. I mean, it's both for Charlie Kaufman fans and people who are not necessarily Charlie Kaufman fans. So it seems like he really hit this one out of the park. So everybody listening to this should definitely see I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about kind of this shift of perspective from Jesse Buckley's character to Jesse Plemons' characters, which, by the way, the fact that they have the same name is, is kind of probably a coincidence, but kind of perfect, is, is a really difficult exercise that the film does. It could really fail. And I think the, the reason it works is, is that's why I really highlight, I want to highlight the actors. I think, I think they really make that work, uh, where, where it could have really failed. And yeah, I think what Saul mentioned about the title, I think that ambiguity of the title is very much pointed, right? Uh, the fact that it could mean, I mean, it seems to mean when she at least first says it, uh, to be about the relationship, but that the sentence could very easily reference suicide. It's very appropriate, I think, to, to what the film is doing in general. I'm surprised though, Chris, you mentioned the production design being a bit of a disappointment uh, to you. I wonder what you mean by that exactly, because I, I thought the film looked great. Uh, did you have something specific in mind or just a general feeling? No, not at all. Like I said, actually, it looks great in uh, the place that it actually is, but it's very, very limited in, in what it does. And that's, that's on point. But uh, as with Charlie Kaufman's other previous works, it could have obviously been more expansive uh, and expensive. Uh, it is a Netflix film, but like within its limitations, it's, it works so well and it's so visually uh, well done too. So I'm, I'm not going to complain about that at all. I just mean that it's on a smaller scale than uh, Sinecdoche in New York and obviously his an animated effort and Malisa. So that, that's all I meant by that. Right, I see what you mean. What you mean. I, th I think I, I do like that focus, uh, the, the focus that it brings, right? that kind of limitation possibly of, of budget. 
And uh, moving on to Tom, what is uh, your number one favorite film of 2020? Here we are for the number one. So for this one, I'm going to ask a question. Now, have you ever watched a film and felt like it was made just for you? A film that taps into your subconscious and feeds off your darkest dreams to conjure up a wildly compelling storyline that manifests as a vivid and vibrant nightmare. Now, Come True is the seminal science fiction horror by director and writer Anthony Scott Burns that had this profound effect on me, eliciting an emotional response on an intensity I had not experienced since my first encounter with Blade Runner 2049. Part of the reason why Come True resonated with me on such a deep level is its audaciously original narrative that plunges into the science behind dreams and builds upon the fear of sleep paralysis. Many years ago, I became obsessed with dreams due to a fascination with films such as Waking Life and The Science of Sleep, and I had often wondered why there weren't more creative filmmakers willing to utilise dreams as a tool for adventurous storytelling. The fact that Come True traverses the world of dreams and is also an unsettling horror with a striking 80s visual and oral aesthetic meant that I was almost instantly taken with it. As someone who has experienced sleep paralysis firsthand, I can verify that Burns' striking imagery comes very close to capturing the sheer terror of the phenomenon. The haunting scenes where the camera pans along a seemingly never-ending pathway through all manner of disturbing environments are also chilling and possess an unnatural cinematic beauty that I find enrapturing. I can certainly understand why the film has had a mixed reaction, the ending in particular is bold, yet somewhat unoriginal, though I feel it works perfectly in Burns' capable hands, and I can't wait to see where he takes us with his next feature film. Come True is a film that, when I was watching the first 50 minutes or so of it, I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to have to make room for this in my top five. This is just great. I think what you described, uh, the aesthetic, the neon kind of aesthetic right uh, the the mood that's really this uh, filmmaker sets and and his main actress who i think is is very striking to look at i think he uses her uh, quite well and yeah i was really in love with this film at first um, and i think the the mystery that it builds on with how scary our dreams can be right because it's something we don't entirely understand it's something we certainly have very little control over and so it's great for the uh, for a horror film like this that really smartly uses that mystery to its advantage. But I think, unfortunately, it does unravel a bit when it has to get closer to that mystery. It's o always very difficult to live up to that kind of very uh, masterful build-up, I would say. And I don't think that film, the, this film really succeeds in there. But overall, it's still a very positive experience for me. And uh, like you, Tom, I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this filmmaker goes next because there's clearly a lot of talents uh, in there, just which... I just wish that the films had worked fully for me. My take on Come True is similar to Mature. I had the same experience that I was really enjoying the film for the first 45 or 50 minutes. And likewise, I thought, you know, this is going to be something that's going to be in my top five or top 10 of the year. And then about halfway in, the filmmakers reveal what the characters are doing. And, you know, once Revelation came in, the whole thing got a lot less interesting for me. Don't want to spoil it too much, but just the build-up of it, the mysteriousness of it, 
The uh, colors there were amazing, strong blues and purples, nighttime shots. Uh, yeah, it just looked amazing, and it was really encapsulating to start off with. But, you know, as the film went along, as it tried to explain more, I guess I just found the explanations, I guess, quite dull and didn't really do much for me. I do entirely agree with Tomo that films about sleep are really great. I I love Waking Life. I absolutely love um, Michelle Gondry's Science of Sleep. Those are amazing films. I think a lot can be done with sleep as a topic, and I agree there's not a lot of films on there about it. Sorry, there's not a lot of films out there about it, and I'm sure, yeah, had the potential of being one of those great ones for me, but it wasn't quite overall, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same place as uh, both Mathieu and uh, Saul. And I'm going to frustrate Tom a little bit because one of the things I love the most is actually a kind of comparison to The Swarm, where it spends so much time on atmosphere and this stripped back aesthetic. It's a little, it's a very different visual style. Uh, it's shot really well. It, it's much more well suited for this kind of semi-science fiction, almost gothic dream landscape type of film. So it, it really nails that down. It's a very different atmosphere. I can get why you loved one, not the other, but that part of just being a slow, restrained horror slash genre film is what really pulled me in here. And like the other said, for the first half or so, I mean, it just worked so well. It just kept building tension. You got these kind of small glimpses as something maybe going wrong, uh, something else being there. And that part was quite exceptional. Uh, but then I think that when it starts taking turns into, first of all, explaining it a little bit more, it, it starts to feel slightly cheaper. And then without spoiling anything, I do think that the ending is almost a bit of a slap in the face. Uh, I understand from Tommy, we've been discussing this a bit before the episode that, you know, there are clues and other things that makes that more reasonable, but it just feels like it goes against what the film was doing, especially in the part that I wasn't enjoying so much already. So that puts some damper on the work, but it's a very atmospheric film. It's a, it's a very good genre film, and it, it's just terribly enjoyable. So anyone who likes, you know, atmospheric visual genre films that's a little bit more restrained and builds tension, they just definitely recommend it. I'm glad that everyone's on board. We're appreciating the amazing atmospherics that this film creates. And I think it's worth pointing out that the director, Anthony Scott Burns, also created a lot of the music for the film. He writes music under the guise of Pilot Priest, and he collaborated with Electric Youth, perhaps most famous for the work on the, the Drive soundtrack. And I think it's a, an excellent collaboration because the soundtrack really brings the film to life. And it's a soundtrack that I listen to, um, aside from the film, because uh, I think the music there is brilliant. And with regards to the film perhaps becoming less great or less exciting once it starts explaining films, I can understand that interpretation totally because the mystery that it builds up is amazing and perhaps the answers that it, it starts feeding us along the way are not always satisfying. But as is the case with dream logic, there can be confusion and the writer-director has... Um, said himself that everything that happens in the film happens intentionally and you're able to uh, read between the lines and suss out what he meant at certain stages of the film. So I'm yet to revisit it, but I'm certainly excited to give it another spin now that I know that, you know, everything was put there, it's intentional, 
and I can try and read into uh, the director's intentions a bit further. I'd say I'm not bothered by the ending like Chris is. I think it, it fits what kind of film this is fine. To me, the, the issue I have with the with latter half is more related to the characters because I think once you're kind of out of the, the wonderful mood and, and the building up uh, of the, the first half of the film, once the film just slightly loses a bit of that, I started realizing that I did not care much about the characters and I think that's where uh, the film is just lacking a, a bit for me. Uh, I think the way it has fun with the dream logic actually works for me for the most part, including the ending. Uh, I don't think it's a great ending, but I think it's appropriate enough for the film. And moving on to Saul, what is your favorite film of 2020? It is somewhat fitting that I'm following uh, Tom with my pick because Tom's talked about Come True and it flowing based on dream logic, whereas my number one flows on nightmare logic. So my favorite film of 2020 is the scariest horror film that I've seen in a while. It is a movie about a man who wakes up one day to find strange and unfamiliar persons living in his apartment. They seem to know who he is, but he has never seen them before. Things start to become even more frightening as one of the strangers claims to be his daughter. Who are these people and why do they claim to know him? Why are they living in his house and why are they talking about him behind his back? And where is his daughter actually gone? The horror film that I'm talking about is, of course, the living, breathing nightmare that is Florian Zeller's The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins. Watching the film a few months ago before the buzz built up, and when every man and his dog was still betting on Chadwick Bosman winning the Best Actor Oscar. All that I knew about The Father going in was that it was a film about a man suffering from dementia. I had no idea there was going to be a first-person point of view account of the experience of living with dementia. And while some of my co-hosts in the lead-up to the podcast have scoffed or maybe at least questioned the notion of calling it a horror movie, I actually don't know what a better description would be of the film. It's a truly frightening and disorientating experience, which I've likened to Memento, where the protagonist who finds he's unable to trust his own mind and able to trust his own memories. It's got an amazing production design where every single set is actually the alteration of the one set, which brings to mind uh, the movie Cube. And it's, yeah, just a totally immersive, living, breathing nightmare experience that I could not more possibly more highly recommend. Yeah, you're spot on there, Saul. I mean, The Father is just outside my top 10 of the year as well. I mean, it could easily have been included in my top 10. And I, I don't think you're off at all calling it a horror film because what this film does so well is to genuinely put you into the experience of what it feels like having dementia. Uh, you, you mentioned the connection to Memento, which, you know, puts you into the experience of someone who has short-term memory, um, struggles with memory, and, and makes you feel how the world feels to him. That's a little bit less relevant, that's a little bit less dangerous for all of us. However, getting dementia or Alzheimer's or some other uh, disease that starts eating us away, that is quite a big possibility for all of us. And just seeing this from his 
perspective, uh, seeing the world change, being unaware of what happened before or after, feeling confused, seeing things just slightly change, and just the ways people speak and deal with him. Uh, you, you are as disoriented as him in this role. It, it's an incredibly powerful performance by Anthony Hopkins. I think he definitely deserved to win the Oscar. He's just absolutely fantastic, and he can make you break down. And, and it is just really well done. And this is the film I was talking about earlier, too, when we were talking about I'm thinking of ending things, because it has this disorienting sense of time and everything changing, too. So it, this is just a great, great, well-planned uh, way of just having three films that in some way kind of test together coming back to back. But wow, I mean, yes, it's, it's existential horror. Uh, at its best, it is a incredibly strong drama. It has just wonderful performances by everyone involved, and it will make you incredibly uneasy. Uh, the Father was actually in my top 10. It was my number 8. So I definitely agree uh, with most of what has been said so far. I don't know that I would quite call it a horror film, but I certainly see your point, Saul. It's, it's definitely a, a huge part of the, the film's appeal. And the way that Florian Zeller was able to re-adapt to the cinematic medium, right? Because this is a play first, and you can definitely see it. But uh, that first-person perspective... The way he uses that really brings a lot to the film and really transforms, I think, uh, adequately for, for what cinema needs. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is obviously great. Uh, I do want to highlight also Olivia Colman, uh, who is playing the daughter or one of the incarnations of the daughter. And she, um, I, I think her performance is great because she allows her character to be at times uh, irritable, at times uh, kind of not reacting necessarily in the best way, not seen in the best light. Uh, and I think that's, um, that really makes her character work, uh, because we feel the same way. It really puts us in her position, even though the film is quite literally from Anthony Hopkins, his perspective. In some way, you guys mentioned Memento. It didn't come to my mind, but it's, you guys are totally right. It's, it's completely obvious. It's, it's very related, but because the film puts us in Anthony Hopkins' perspective, but by definition, it can't, right? we remember what happened in the previous scenes. So we're kind of in a split perspective. And I think the film really handles that uh, pretty well. So yeah, I definitely agree that this is a, an excellent film. I really like how Chris pointed out the similar themes amongst all of our number one films so far. Films that toy with our emotions, they're puzzling, disturbing in parts. But I have to disagree with Saul's classification as the father being a horror. To me, that feels like saying Hereditary is a family drama. Yes, it is, but primarily it's, it's a horror film. Um, the Father is not primarily a, a horror film. It's a, a disturbing, unsettling watch, but I would definitely classify it as, as a drama. That being said, it is an excellent film, some really good performances, a beautiful classical score to go along with it. The only thing it lacked for me was the emotional punch towards the end. I know that... I might be on my own saying this, but I feel that there's been other films in the past that have dealt with this theme and uh, accomplished much more, such as uh, Michael Haneke's film and more, and also uh, Sarah Polly's film, Away From Her. Uh, that's not to take away from The Power of the Father. It is a great film. just feel it doesn't quite live up to the aforementioned films. It's interesting, the films that you've brought up as comparison pieces, Tom. I 
My mentioned this before, I haven't seen them all because uh, everything I've heard about it, you know, it's about taking care of, you know, a woman who's dying. It doesn't sound like a particularly, well, it wouldn't be uplifting, but it doesn't sound like something which I would enjoy or get much out of watching. It sounds like just something I would just find depressing, so I've never actually sat down and watched it. I haven't seen Away From Her for a couple of years. But that was a film that I liked a lot more for Gordon Pinsett's performance and his side of it rather than Julie Christie's side of it. I guess, you know, with him, you see more of, you know, the emotional toll him or you didn't really see it through Julie Christie's character. But other than that, I haven't really thought about the connection between that film and The Father other than you dropping it on just then. It is an interesting comparison to make. In terms of it being a horror film, well, yeah, Hereditary is a family drama. Is it a horror film or family drama first or foremost? I don't know. I think Hereditary is probably a family drama that becomes a horror film. The Father is, well, I don't know. It depends which way you look at it. If you're looking at it from his point of view, it is a horror film because he's seeing all these people who doesn't know why they're there, why is in their apartment, why they're saying they've already lived there. He's in constant fear and anxiety which is the definition of horror, but, you know, other than trying to get it included in Marty Sparks's uh, They Shoot Zombies canon, I don't know if the definition's really that important about whether it's horror or not. It is a fantastic piece of cinema. I agree with uh, what Mature said about Olivia Coleman's performance. She's fantastic. Olivia Williams also as the other incarnation. And even all the other side characters do really well considering how ambiguous their roles are and how their roles sort of change a little bit depending on Anthony Hopkins' perspective on what's happening. In terms of the ending and having the emotional punch, uh, I'm not sure about it. The ending, I guess, was maybe not as uh, affecting for me as the different parts of it as he's like going in between different rooms of his house and how the different time periods seem to change as he's changing rooms. I mean, that's probably the scariest part of the film for me, but it definitely left uh, yeah, quite an impact with me to the point where it actually dethroned promising young woman, which is not something that I ever saw coming. Yeah, I can pretty much agree with that. I mean, I think that the ending does have an emotional punch, but it could have been stronger. And I, I do agree that a lot of the parts before were stronger. I think what does work with the, some of the final scenes is that it kind of dishells a little bit of what Idem Tom and said previously, that we, as looking outside of it, we know we remember. But the thing is, uh, the film consistently makes us unsure of what we remember. Like, are we remembering it correctly or what we are seeing actually what happens or what's happening right now or part of it memory or part of it dreams or part of it all the within his head uh, like you, you don't know you, you you do generally get the sense of being this truly disoriented and that's one of the most powerful things that uh, the father does but on to my favorite film of 2020 and one that unfortunately probably doesn't have that many overlaps with the three films preceding, though it may have a little bit more to do with films like, for instance, Promising Young Woman, just even more to the side of uh, meta-satire that I really love, but my co-hosts might not appreciate <laughs> to the same uh, degree. So so it, it is you this uppercase print. And let's just put it uh, like this. I mean, whoever said that lines delivered flat without any emotion cannot deliver a punch is well 
wrong, at least in my opinion. Some of my co-hosts may disagree, but this is a large part of where the power, both in terms of comedy and horror, comes from uh, in this film. I mean, just to be clear, this is not presence monologues. This is recitations of real reports and letters and in the most awkwardly amusing way. But as the film continues, it just becomes increasingly disturbing. Uh, uppercase print takes from the archives the real story and the real words of a literal massive investigations into who wrote slogans in, well, you guessed it, uppercase print on the walls in Bucharest in 1981. This horrendous criminal act sets forth an investigation with hundreds of informants, countless police officers staking out suspect areas, and increasingly bizarre reports, including letters from regular people and to reactions to the events, each of them thinking the fact that these slightly anti-government, or rather the quite anti-government slogans, which are just quite slight, quite small, are the worst crime that was ever committed. And this is presented in a visual world that is essentially like Godard's The Joy of Learning, but blown up to a much larger scale and then moved into some kind of incredible Brechtian theater. And this is actually a Brechtian documentary theater adaptation. The characters here are standing in front of walls decorated merely by things like a massive recording device, a massive TV, and other exaggerated props giving some kind of semblance of context. And then they're just lighted up in these strong colors before our characters, if you will, recite their reports, their letters, their notations. With this deadpan delivery, the reality of life in 1980s Romania becomes increasingly clear. And to create an even larger context, Radio the intercuts real footage from TV stations from the same time, connecting the real reality of political suppression and this, this comedic dance, this, this kind of lies they were telling themselves, and this horrifying Big Brother. Uh, and it, it's like a lighthearted fall, farce. You see, calls for patriotism. The state is trying to create this kind of lull, fooling people into a weird submission, and it just increases the comedy more and more, while also becoming terribly clear that it's just so wrong. This is an absolutely terrifying reality to live within. At least for me, uh, uppercase print cements Radiudu's positions as one of the great cinematic masters of our age. It, it takes all of the meta elements he's been experimenting with his entire career even further, creating a meta essay that dissects and contextualizes and dramatizes almost every part of society at this point in time. And throughout his career, he's pointed that focus everywhere, from the, the fascists in Romania to uh, to the film industry. He's systematically just going through Romanian society and dissecting it piece by piece by piece and breaking it down more and more. And this is put like this, at least for me, the ending scene in particular is just so strong and plays with ideas of breaking down all walls and making it clear that you're watching and interacting with a film as well as history. 
with essentially the participations here speaking directly to you. You are an active participant. And this is what Radu does so well in his films, amplified even more in his uh, Berlinale winner from this year as well, which I'm sure will be in my top list when we go through our 2021 films. So this is a film I absolutely love. As you can tell from my presentation, it may be a little bit more niche. It may not work for people who are not necessarily into meta-narratives or art house films. But if you are, this is one more film on my list that I cannot recommend more. Yeah, it's quite interesting, Chris, to hear you talk about the uh, stilted deadpan acting and how engaging you found it. Because when I was watching the film with all the stilted performances and looking at the characters who were directly addressing the camera, I actually thought I was watching a mockumentary at first. And then you've got like the secret police who are checking the handwriting on every single piece of mail, having 12 surveillance vehicles and four officers stationed outside graffiti locations, having listening devices. I thought, oh, you know, this is a really, you know, funny and mockumentary. But then, of course, I paused the film, did a bit of research and actually is a documentary. So it is interesting how, because you mentioned before, there's a little bit of comedy in there. It sort of the film plays up the comedy of it. And definitely the TV footage, which you mentioned, with all of the singing about how great Romania is, all the archive footage there, does sort of like paint it as a little bit, you know, comical. But I guess for me, watching it, the emotional involvement wasn't really quite there because of the stilted performances. I, I'm quite big on acting, I guess. You know, it sounds awful, but... I guess, you know, that's what happens from being raised in conventional narrative films. But, you know, you know, absolutely despised um, The Living World, which is this 2003 film, which is apparently in Bresson style with deadpan performances. And, you know, I just, you know, absolutely, you know, can't stand deadpan performances. It's just something which absolutely takes me out of the film to a point where I'm not able to immerse with it. So I sort of appreciated the way the film's trying to, like, pull out the humour of it, but in pulling out the humour of it by having all this deadpan stuff in there, it just made it hard for me to become emotionally invested in it. And then, you know, the time's sticking away, it gets to two hours, and I guess by the time the film was over, I found it a bit more exhausting and exhilarating. It's definitely very interesting, it's definitely very different, but it's not really a film that I enjoyed as much as I appreciated what the filmmakers were trying to do with it. I love listening to Chris speak about Jude as a filmmaker. He's so enthusiastic and passionate about him that even though I've not been enamoured with any of the Jude films I've seen so far, Chris's passion is infectious and it kind of keeps me coming back. I'm like, I'm sure there must be something here. There must be something that is making an impression, making an impact on Chris that's going to connect with me one day. And it hasn't yet, but I have to say that I totally agree that he's a, a unique voice in cinema right now. But Uppercase Print was a bit too experimental for my liking and, and the documentary footage often felt disjointed. I think um, similar to Matteo's pick earlier, The Monopoly of Violence, perhaps this might have a stronger appeal for a native audience. There's lots of archive footage and cultural references that don't really mean much to me. Um, it was an interesting film, but yeah, just one that didn't really chime with me. 
So unlike Chris, I have had a good experience with Radu Yude with uh, I Do Not Care If We Go Down Into History as Barbarians, a film that Chris had picked for, for our episode about 2018, I think, and which I did love. But this one did not really work for me. Um, Saul mentioned uh, it's become exhausting after a point, and I, I kind of agree with that on the main the main device of the film, right? The, the, this whole case around the graffiti art. It's not so much that I was exhausted by it, it's just that I kind of lost interest in it. I don't know if it's the style, which I'm fine with, or if it's just the content. I did not find this story to be that illuminating, right? It's it's an interesting story, but maybe not a two-hour story. And I, I was a little disappointed in that because, on the other hand, I did really appreciate uh, the choice that Yuda makes of um, using all of that archival footage. I think that's actually kind of a brilliant idea uh, of putting you in the shoes of someone living in Romania in the 80s and what's what you're being fed, right? What, what is your environment? And contextualizing the story he's telling in that way, I think, is, is a great idea. I just wish I had been more interested in the story itself. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I'm really happy you enjoyed uh, the documentary footage because that's one of the things that uh, most of the critics that just liked the film were complaining about the most, that they wish that this was slimmed down because they thought it took some of the focus away. And I really, what I really like here is really the balance between just showing how fake over the top and how scared the people were and how everyone were essentially telling stories, lying to themselves, lying to everybody else because they didn't know who they could trust. They were so worried about appearances that something this minute would be the greatest tragedy in the world. And that's just really what drives both the humor and the horror there. And I thought that the balance was excellent. I, I can definitely see why you, especially Mathieu, who liked some of Judas' previous films, would not like this as much because it is undoubtedly his most experimental it's his most meta it's his uh, the film that offers the least in variety i suppose in terms of acting styles uh, and focus i mean most of it is in front of stages or with these intercuts of films so uh, if this is your first you then you'd kind of like some of what you're seeing but you think it's too extreme uh, his other films are not as extreme at all and i can see that you know a lot of you the fans for instance liked bad luck banging which is the Berlin dollar winner a lot more and that's the response from the critics as well so this may just be catering like like uh, tom said earlier when a film is made just for you this may really be just one of those films that uh, is made particularly for people with very extreme sensibilities the rest of you, the films are not as extreme. They're a little bit broader, and those may work better for you. But uh, for me personally, this is one of his better works. Not as great as uh, you know his uh, masterpiece. I don't care if you call it history as barbarians, which would be my number one recommendations to everyone who hasn't seen a Yudi film yet. But yeah, undoubtedly still my number one favorite film of 2020, and it's just a film I'm sure I'm going to be watching several times in the future as well. You know, you mentioned earlier that our top three of our top ones, Tom, Saul, and, and Mines, all have in common this kind of playing with reality. Uh, is it real? Is it not? What with the dreams and, and etc. And yours doesn't quite as much, but actually it does your favorite thing in the whole world, which is <laughs> this confusion between documentary and fiction. <laughs> you love so much, and that's also playing with reality. So I think we do we do have a theme unifying us. Spot on. 
and what a great way to finish the episode on as well. So everything comes together. The final number one choices were all picked to align perfectly. And on that note, I just have to thank you all so much for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.